Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How you doing? And also Teresa Morrow. Hey, Teresa. Hi, Renee. So we've got a mailbag today. Yeah, we had questions kind of piling up from listeners, and then we posted something up on the Tone Benders Facebook page saying, if you have a question, throw it to us. If you don't follow us on Facebook, feel free to find us on there. So let's get to it, I guess. The first question is, I love your show. I'm actually not a sound designer, but a director. What's the best way for a director to find a sound editor that's a good match for them? I think that's a super interesting question. When you think about what sound designers and and sound editors are doing for a film, we're stepping in as creative collaborators, much like an actor or a set designer would do. It's often a mistake if a director is going to look at their sound people as purely technical people. You really have to come at it with a uh, creative collaboration type headspace. And so, you know, as a director, how do you how do you approach people that do set design? How do you approach people that, you know, how do you approach your actors? How do you, how do you cast, you know, one versus the other? You know, you can't really audition a sound designer the way you can audition an actor, but you can definitely look at the reels and the scope of work that somebody puts out. And when you're looking at work, you pretty much need to be paying attention to stylistic cues and imagining, you know, your work in this person's hands and seeing if, if the styles and the types of decisions that they make are things that mesh with what you're trying to execute in your own individual project. Do you think like if somebody saw a film that was maybe in the same budget range, roughly as the film that they were making, that they would come to you and be like, oh, I saw that you did the sound on this. I like what got done here. Would that be a a connection that they would make? I mean, to some degree. And when you're doing interesting, creative stuff, or, you know, a lot of like, you know, the lower to mid-range stuff ends up being horror, scary stuff, or it's kind of walk and talk drama or dramedy type stuff. With the drama stuff, you don't need as um, deep a creative collaboration as you do with the, with the scary stuff or, or with the tension and with the suspense stuff. As you go and, and try and recruit your team and as you're looking even in the storyboard stage and, and in, the, in the script writing stage, you, you should be really, really trying to put your feelers out there and trying to extend your network into... Uh, the type of people that are available to work on your films. And as you initially cast your net of the people that are available, you start trying to narrow it down based on stylistic preferences and stylistic tendencies. And to some degree, a lot of that can happen just with conversations. And so a lot of you know directors and, and the rest of the creative folks, I mean, you basically need to go out and have some coffee and and kind of talk about what your backgrounds are and what films are interesting to you and what films you enjoy and what styles you enjoy and why you like this versus that. And in a lot of cases with creative people, you will, um, you'll find out if you mesh pretty quickly with those types of conversations. So you, when you find somebody that's on the same page as you creatively, then the other piece of homework you have to do is to make sure that they can execute it technically and also execute it um, on time and on budget. Say, say you find somebody that you mesh with creatively. Um, if it's somebody that doesn't necessarily have a track record of delivery, alternatively, if it's somebody that's too busy to, to fit your project in on time and on budget, if all three of those boxes aren't checked, you're asking for trouble. You know, so they have to mesh with you creatively and they have to be able to deliver on time and they have to be able to deliver on, on budget. You have to give as a director in all three of those. So you have to be able to, you know, communicate a clear creative vision to any collaborator that you want to work with. You have to have a realistic timeline for someone to execute the work and you have to have a realistic budget 
to hire somebody so that they can actually, you know, do the work. If, if you as a director fail in any of those three, then the people you collaborate will not be set up to deliver for your project on any of those three. And there's going to be a pitfall. Something's going to, something's going to fall apart. And the worst thing is when things start falling apart at the end, after you've done all the work of screenwriting, casting, shooting, editing, um, and you get to the very end, you got to get it across the finish line. And that's not where you want to be cutting corners. Yeah, which I just want to underline that, that the directors that I respect, that I work with, have a, not a nitty-gritty understanding, but have a pretty good overview of what the audio post-production process is. Because if you don't get that, some ball is going to get dropped at some point. Uh, so it, I, I always think it's really incumbent on directors and producers, too, to really understand the technical process so that you can make realistic requests of the team that you're working with. Another thing that we can talk about maybe is the idea, you were saying go out for coffee with the sound editors or sound supervisor, but the way the world's working now, like we just had Peter Albrechtson on and he's doing all these films when he's in Denmark and the people that he's collaborating with are in LA or New York. The The world is kind of opened up. You don't have to go to the studio that's in your town. Like if you're in LA, there are a million options, but if you're trying to make a film in St. Louis... You don't have to go to the, the on, one of only few studios in St. Louis. You can try and reach out to someone like Peter, who's got a reputation, but they're on another continent, maybe even. But you can kind of broaden your search more than just the people who happen to be around the corner from you, which is the way it has been in the past. I know I've gotten projects before simply because I'm physically close to the person that directed the film. And I think that paradigm is changing massively. And another thing that I just want to mention is from the other side of the equation, how to mesh with a director if you're the sound editor, sound designer, sound supervisor. That is a tricky thing too. Like the ideal situation is you walk in the room, you guys both have the same joke and you laugh and you just click right away. But I've worked on projects where I walked in the room and the director was just angry and yelling all the time. And it wasn't necessarily at me. He was just, that was their way of communicating and I was like, I don't want to work with this guy. And then after a few days of dealing with that, I realized that's just the way this person communicates. They're not actually angry. They're just kind of know what they want and are trying to get there. And that is a totally different work dynamic than the two people who are just, uh, you know, joshing and joking the whole time. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. It's not as much fun, but it's not, it's not <laughs> wrong. Uh, so you have to kind of find a way to work with the people that you, uh, you end up being able to work with and find ways to make that work because no two directors work the same way. Yep. And no two people are going to click a thousand percent on everything either. You know, sometimes as the, um, as the director, you're going to, you're going to fight for your creative choices. And sometimes as a director, you should listen to the, um, to the sound designers and the sound effects editors and the mixers as they come back and say, Hey, this probably will improve your project. Um, so it's important to have an open mind and a clear vision at the same time. And another thing directors can do when they're working with new sound designers is not take something that isn't right for them as a mistake. 
give the sound designer room to try something. And if it's not what you were going for, then you have a point of reference then. If their first uh, take on what you're going for isn't exactly what you wanted, that's not the end of the relationship. That doesn't mean that it won't work. Because I've worked on lots of projects where I went to sci-fi on something and the director's like, whoa, 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 that's not what I was wanting. And then, you know, you dial it back, you have that conversation, your next pass, yes, that's what I was looking for. And sometimes it takes one or two passes to get to that point where you and the director are starting to meld minds and uh, be going down the road together. So don't uh, throw your hands up in the air and think the sky is falling if the first screening isn't exactly what you were looking for. Yeah, I think that's true. Like uh, I've been in situations or I've seen them in teams where the first thing that gets done is not what the director wanted or had heard in their head. And they forget that we're really versatile. Like sound effects editors can go in many different styles. Just because you did a horror film and you are known for doing those effects doesn't mean you can't do a very beautiful pastoral experimental film. So exactly what you're saying, Tim, like don't assume that, oh, it's all a disaster. Like ask them to keep pushing towards what you want. And you'll find that the sound effects editors are capable of doing a lot of different kinds of things. Yep. And sound designers tend to like doing different things. So if someone is known for doing horror films or doing animation, and then they get a chance to do a documentary, a music documentary or something like that, that's exciting. That's something that we will jump at the chance for. No one wants to be put in a box and only get a certain kind of work. For sure. With that said, we each kind of have, you know, those of us that have been doing it for a minute, we have well-defined aesthetics. And so within multiple genres, we should be able to describe to you the things that we like and the way that we kind of get across the things that we want. Um, A lot of what we're trying to do in the sound side is manipulate emotions and and to evoke, you know, um, highs and lows with regards to what your audience is feeling. So when you look at us as collaborators, don't look at us as technical sound collaborators, look at us as creative, emotional collaborators and evaluate us in those terms. And I think you'll, you'll go pretty far that way. The other thing I would say is really, really be careful uh, and watch for people with track records, right? You want to see um, as much credits um, as you can afford to pay for. <laughs> um, you know, the the more uh, the more skins on the wall somebody has, the more likely they are to be able to uh, to do whatever you ask of them. And there's a lot of people that have that sound design shingle up on their on their door right now. Um, and some of them only have so much experience. Some of them are primarily composers that you know do sound design on the side or vice versa. And so you really really have to evaluate people's track records. And their and their credits as much as you do their aesthetic to make sure that that's that's how you decide that yeah this person can actually deliver what I'm going to ask for. Okay, so ready for the next question? Cool. Let's do it. Okay, this one is from Kesha Setoff. When working on animation, what's your take on the balance between realistic sounds and when you go with synthetic goofy effects? So to set up who works in animation here, Tim. <laughs> I do a lot of sound design for animation, and Teresa mixes a lot of animation. So uh, there is no proper answer to that. Each show demands different things, and not only does the director want different things, but sometimes it's just on the screen. The screen can tell you a lot of stuff before you've ever done a pass with the director. I find that I let the screen tell me how cartoony to get. And it works out really well that way because it feels right. There's a feel for animation 
uh, you can go way off of the path and sometimes that works really well, but the more you do it, the more you just get a feel for what that show needs. And sometimes the shows need both. The show I'm on right now, Paw Patrol, we've developed an aesthetic where the pups, when they're not in their vehicles doing a mission, it's very kind of vaudevillian with classic cartoon sounds. When they fall, you get the doinks and the boinks. But when their vehicles transform and they're in their cars, they're super realistic engine sounds and uh, the transformation sounds aren't realistic because surprisingly dog houses don't transform into fire trucks in real life. <laughs> but uh, like those sounds are uh, modern sounds and not comedic at all. They're cutting metal cracks and such. But then when the dogs are outside of the vehicles and they do the wrap up at the end of the show and they bump into a wall, you get the boinks back and the uh, slide whistles and stuff like that. But there's a time and a place within that show for when the sounds become more serious and when they become more uh, cartoony. Yeah, and in other shows I've worked on, I worked on a, a anime series that was super synthy. There was no classic vaudevillian kind of cartoon sound effects like slide whistles and boings, but everything was synth-based. Like, there was hardly any reality-based sounds in that show. And that's what that show called for because that's how the animation was done. And then I've worked on other shows about fairies where it was super foley based. The sound of the wings were foley uh, flips and everything sounded exactly like what a real fairy would sound like <laughs> uh, if real fairies existed. So yeah, it depends on what the show is. Every show kind of calls for its own world. That's what I always yeah. say. Yeah, and when a show starts you're going to get a lot of different input, often conflicting direction around that. We were talking about this before we started recording today. I'm working on a pilot right now. And so the sound supervisor is saying, not too cartoony. And then the director sends an email and he says, well, a little cartoony. And then like there's a conversation back and forth. And then so I go to the sound effects editor and I say, give me everything. Because we don't know yet. We're going to work it out. And it's not until we're all sitting in the suite and we're listening to this and we're listening to that that they're going to be able to actually see it against picture and actually have a conversation about these things, which they may not have at this point yet even really seriously conceptualized what the sound of the show is yet. They've talked a lot about the the color palettes. They've talked a lot about the animation style, but they may not have had a conversation about the stylistic approach of the sound effects. And it's not until we're all sitting in the room mixing the pilot that there are actually like hard and fast opinions about this. And then when, as the show develops, then it becomes a Bible. Then it's like, you never put a sound for this in, on this shot, or you always use a sound like this in this shot. But this is a language that develops as, as the show comes together. I find anyways, like there's often not a predetermined um, set of answers for that. So I ask sound effects editors to, to lay it up for me. For the first couple episodes. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. Something that I really like doing when I get a new series or a new animated project, I find that the kinds of whooshes that you use in the show really explain a lot of the rest of the show. So to elaborate on that, like if there's synthy whooshes, uh, lasery whooshes, uh, those tend to differentiate the world from airy whooshes and uh, whip whooshes. So if the show needs whip whooshes, that means that it's going to be more a realistic sound effects, where the synth whooshes, I find that to go through and do a whoosh pass can really help me define the world that that show takes place in, which I, I'd never 
would have thought of before I started doing this for a living, that whooshes could be that important to helping to find the kind of uh, language, sonic language of the show. I think that makes total sense, though. You know, one thing I've seen on Twitter is the um, the idea that animation is not a style, it's a medium, right? Because you can kind of do whatever in animation. You can do kids shows, you can do adult stuff, you can do realistic, you can do, um, you know, you can do hyper surrealistic or whatever. And when it comes to the, the primary difference between photography and animation is that you got to draw everything. And so when you're talking about the whooshes, you know, the, this, the visual style of how far something blurs when they, when they draw it out in animation, it makes sense that that would dictate a lot of the audio style too and that how those two things have to play together and how fungible they are from a creative perspective on the very, very front end and how it, 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 exactly what you're talking about, how it ties to how closely you want to tie to reality versus versus hyper-reality, surreality, you know, fantasy or whatever. And, and also going back to what you said about using the screen to dictate or to at least to inform what you're doing, um, I think doing a whoosh pass makes a ton of sense just to specifically find that place in the world you know that 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 place on the dial of, of where you're calibrating the whole aesthetic and we haven't even talked about ambiences and how important the ambience pass is to animation because that uh, sticks everything to the screen and you can get super mundane or super detailed in the ambiences see the problem with a- ambiences with animation is a lot of time the details aren't animated there's just a tree in the background you know, they don't animate the movements of the leaves. They don't animate what kind of animals are underneath there. So that's all left to the sound to define. Because you can put the sound of leaves blowing on a tree that the animation didn't actually do because they didn't have the budget to do that. If you're doing, a, you know, a Pixar film, the leaves will be animated. But a lot of times <laughs> in lower budget <laughs> animated series and such, the tree is just a defined, unmoving thing. But you can create tension and stuff by putting wind through those leaves. You can create animals in that leaves. Is it a busy jungle that's full of life or is it a dead jungle that doesn't have any animals in the distance? And all of that kind of decision making that creates the world of that animation is done through sound. Um, Because they just don't have time in episodic animation to go and animate the BGs, the visual BGs as much. So you have to create those BGs with the sound. Yeah, I find there's a lot of um, um, hand-wringing in <laughs> the beginning stages of sound design for animation Like, because people really get caught up in it. And then once a language establishes itself, then everybody working on the show kind of knows this is how it sounds and you know when it's sounding right. Um, but yeah, I find it can be really tough at the beginning to, to nail these things down because people get really caught up in the details and uh, constantly trying to remind people or, or just like telepathically send the messages like, it's about the story, it's about the story. And like, are the sounds we're putting in telling the story you want to tell here? Like, let's focus on what's important and not worry about so much that this little object that's been put down sounds a certain way or another way. Like, you really have to um, try and get people off the details at a certain point and, and back to storytelling. It's really important that the sound effects really do a lot of the work of even the nitty gritty of storytelling. Like what is actually happening in this scene is often comes down to the sound effects that get put in. So it's, it's, that's not, that's not even a very artistic sort of consideration. It's like, just do we understand what's happening here? <laughs> and uh, the sound effects really are a big part of that. 
I think it's interesting too the fact that you use the word choice that you use was that the sound establishes itself and the soundtrack kind of establishes itself as opposed to you know say the director you know dictating it or the sound designer creating it. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me too because it's, what probably happens is that not a lot of people put a whole lot of brain space into what things are going to sound like until after they see what it looks like, and so because they've been working so hard on the visuals the combination of the visuals, the sound designer's aesthetic, and the director's needs all have to work together to create what the soundtrack ends up actually being. But it's not something that any one person really has a, a whole lot of handle on, I think, probably at the beginning of those type of projects. Yeah, something that is a little slightly off topic, but I think is relevant, is when I sign on for a new series, let's say there's 26 episodes of an animated series, my price that I charge is built in that I'm going to lose money on the first five or six episodes. And then on the last from episode, first five or six episodes, I'm losing money on. I'm charging for X amount of days, but I'm going over that by a few days. I'm definitely losing money on the first because there's changes. We're working with the director. We're going back and forth. The notes after the premix are massive. There's tons of changes. And then after episode five or six, You've got a language, you've got a world that you're working with. And then from five or six to 10, you're in the pocket. And then from 10 to 26, I'm making money because I can now uh, make decisions on my own. I'm not checking with the director on anything. I am now kind of in control of the sound of that world for that animated series. And uh, what the X amount of days that I'm charging, I'm now either hitting exactly or below and that's where I'm making up on the money that I lost on the first five or six episodes. So uh, you got to kind of plan for that because you are going to get your butt kicked on the first at the beginning of a series. Some some series you don't. You just walk in and it, everything works out. But there's some where uh, the first five or six are a real slog to get through. But it's fun. That's also more exciting because you're making decisions. You're putting yourself out there. You're getting shot down, but you're also getting high fives when you do something right. The last five episodes of a series, the director's moved on to something else. If the series didn't get picked up for a second season, the director's literally on another project and just shows they up on mix day. They show up on mix day, watch it through, and they're like, yeah, okay, I got to go. Uh, so the, the, the beginning of the series is super exciting, but stressful and a lot of work. And then as it goes on, everybody starts trusting each other and everybody starts believing in each other. And uh, then it just becomes a well-oiled machine. The series I'm on right now, we're on episode uh, 16 of season five. So we've done over 100 episodes of it. Like I, I barely talk to the director anymore. The director shows up, we have a few notes, we eat some uh, food, and then we move on with our lives. So it's a totally different thing than when that series first started. It was a different director back then, though. But yeah, the screenings and the premixes and everything were stressful. They were, uh, what's going to be said? How are we going to get through this? Are we going to be able to fix the things in time before the final mix? Where now it's just, uh, like it's, it's not a piece of cake. Every episode has its own challenges and such. But it's a totally different uh, way of coming into work. I don't come into work stressed anymore, where for the first five or six episodes, it was, oh God, I hope we get through this. Yeah. I think you really, you need a lot of energy in your back pocket. You also need a lot of extra ideas in your back pocket to be ready mm -hmm. because it, it's, you're going to have to try out a bunch of different directions off the bat. 
And to to address the initial question, how do you decide, you know, how sci-fi versus reality you go? That I think the source of that is is uh, a concern or or an insecurity about, hey, if I'm swimming out, if I'm swimming in the water here, like which way do I go? And it, it seems like what you're saying is the answer is have a lot of ideas and expect iterations and don't don't stress too hard about any one choice just get get a lot of get a lot of pain on the canvas yeah present something though have present something with confidence and yeah. then if uh that's not the way they want to go don't have an ego about it have some backup plans cool so we're going to kind of combine two questions here one is from Esteban Rodriguez on feature films how do you reference your audio mix levels compared to TV and then we also have a question from Magic Ravs it would be great to hear your advice about monitors for sound designers working in home studios do you use subs when you're producing sound for films and games so the common denominator on both of those is if I'm not in a film mixing environment how do I make sure that my stuff is going to sound good in a in a film theater so at Dallas Audio Post, we have a we have a theater, we have a mixing stage that people can kind of mix at, and so what we see, what we have uh, happen occasionally is people will do an entire mix in their home studios or in their smaller sized studio, and bring it into the stage, and you know they'll bring stems in basically, and then we'll finish off the mix there. And in a lot of cases, the things that we are messing with are things like the subwoofer and the LFE. Um, and just, you know, your sub 50, 60 Hertz stuff that is just going to sound different on a big stage than it will in a little room or on cans, especially, um, Teresa, you're, you're the mixer. What, what, what's your opinion there? I think, yeah, I think you're right. Like the best way to know how it's going to sound in a theater is to play it in a theater. Uh, and to a certain extent in an uncalibrated or not professionally calibrated lightly calibrated uh, home studio <laughs> there's going to be things you're not hearing and i think the low frequency stuff is is often a big culprit is that a lot of times we get material for example from composers who um uh we play their tracks in our room and it's so bass heavy and th that uh we are immediately rolling out rolling out rolling out in ways that alarm the composers uh, <laughs> because they're like, well, I didn't think it was that bass heavy. And we're like, yeah, it's not. It's not going to work. Um, so, yeah, I think in, insofar as bass is concerned, I don't know. Like, I, I think you can get a pretty good bass reproduction in a home studio um, if you put some work into um, designing your studio well um and and come out with something that will translate to a mix stage reasonably well that's not uh Im an impossible task it's not just about having a subwoofer though it's also about acoustically treating your room yeah it's mostly about yeah. acoustically treating your room i don't know we chatted a little bit about uh some sound designers uh i've never uh experienced this but there are some people who are working with these sub backpacks I don't know if you guys know anything about these. This was news some, to me, yeah. Yeah, so spell it some out. Some gaming designers uh, have these, like, backpacks that, like, are your sub-channel so that you can be working on headphones and have an accurate idea of, like, where when your sub is coming into play because you're actually getting a little, like, colonic vibration. Colonic. Um, I would love to hear more <laughs> from people about how that actually works. <laughs> <laughs> In when you're working on cutting your tracks, like I would love to know if that gives you an accurate representation of how it feels in when you take that up to a bigger stage or something like that. I mean, I think some of the source of that also is that, as you know, as you're 
as you're composing and, and sound designing with synths specifically, those things can go all the way down to DC and they can go, you know, they can give you, you know, four Hertz as at zero DB if you program them to do that. And so, you know, the question really to some degree comes from, Hey, how do I even know what's happening down there? Um, and how can I, how can I trust what's going to, what's going to go on there with regards to how it translates to the stage? Um, it seems like there there are two real straightforward ways to go about it. One is to actually meter your low end and meter your frequency range, and and try and be realistic about what you're seeing on that meter versus what you're actually hearing in the room. If you're seeing tons and tons of low end and you're not hearing it, or you're hearing weird holes, because a lot of what happens is not that the speakers can't reproduce down there; it's that your room is causing nodes and 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 weird additions and subtractions in the lower frequencies. Um, so if what you're hearing isn't, isn't exactly matching what you're seeing, you have to be realistic with yourself about that. Um, and the other thing is try and find a, a stage or as close to a stage as you can. Um, and if you're not in a, if you're not in a city where there is a, a properly calibrated pro tools equipped mixed stage for you to take your rig to, I mean, I've, I've advised certain people go to a, I mean, you could book out a theater. Um, just a regular movie theater for, you know, for a playback test. Um, a lot of them, you know, the indie houses and that kind of stuff can do that. So you'll at least have an idea of what happens out there. Um, but broadly, I would advise people to to do that and then to do it repeatedly. Um, so you can really, really start finding what's what's working in your room and what's translating versus where your room is limited and what's not translated. Um, I've done this myself also with, um, so I do a lot of work for the Dallas Stars and for the for the Mavericks and and they play at the American Airlines Center in Dallas. Well, I don't have a giant 18,000 seat arena. I thought um, you were a professional, Renee. I mean, I'm this close. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't have that environment. I don't have the actual playback environment with which to do my mix. And so what I've had to do over the years is do a whole bunch of mixes and show up to the games and listen to how my mixes play back in the arena. And by repeating that process over and over again, I've really found A, what the limitations of my room are and B, what they do in the context of the arena. Because a lot of times I'll, I'll hand a mix over it and the front of house guy will do more EQ to it. And so my goal is to have them leave it as flat as possible. But sometimes, you know, just, you know, from an aesthetics point of view, they want things to go bump. And so I have to... Um, from a design perspective, you know, add a whole bunch more low end into things that sound weird in my room, but I know we're going to, are going to at least be less affected by the mix engineer in the front of the house. It's the same concept when you're moving from a smaller space to, uh, you know, to a theater, um, you just do it over and over again and you start getting some muscle memory for what's working and what's not. The clients that we have that do the mixes primarily, you know, 80, 90% of it in their rooms and then bring it to the stage to finish. Well, the more and more they do that, the closer they are to the final product every time they come to the stage. And, and you know, the first time they did it, it was massive changes. And it was like, oh, my God, what's going on here? And everything was all crazy. Well, you know, after, after you know, six or eight of those, they're pretty close. And now it's just some tweaking and some tuning. And that's kind of what you're wanting it to be. But you don't get to that process unless you've done it a few times. In terms of the reference level uh, question, the question is, as opposed to broadcast, where you might be using a meter, like a WLM meter that gives you a dialogue uh, number to hit, how do you know you're mixing right in a for feature uh, in cinema. I think, Renee, you put it very pithily when we were talking about this earlier. 
Uh, well, I mean, it's it's calibrated mixing, right? So it's, it's calibrated loudness. So when you when you're in a theater, you calibrate all your speakers to be a certain loudness, and then you mix to taste. You mix it to where it sounds good. And the difference between a theater and a um, and a broadcast mix is that your broadcast mix has to hit a number um, to hit the air, and uh, a theatrical mix doesn't necessarily have to hit that number. But the calibration is broadly aiming to do the same thing in both setups, right? So, you know, a TV mix is typically going to be done in a smaller space, calibrated at a slightly lower volume. But the ideal is for you just to be able to mix to taste and the number takes care of itself. Um, and broadly, that's usually what happens. You mix to taste, you might have to tweak a dB or two at the very end of the mix, and then you're done. And with theatrical, it's you just don't end up doing that dB or two tweak at the end. Yeah, it's your ears that are really doing the work there. Yeah. And that's why you get hired, because of your ears. That's a fact. Okay, our last question for today is from Ian Gidrish in Poland. Uh, the last mailbag that we did, we mentioned that when recording footsteps, we do it from a certain distance to make them sound more familiar because that's the way we hear them in real life. Uh, would you please elaborate on that? I'm interested in mic placement and the types of mics you guys use when you do that type of recording. Uh, Renee, you're really the only one of us that does a lot of Foley recording, I think, so why don't you roll on this? Well, so broadly, I mean, the, the standard for Foley mics is the 416. There's a ton of other mics that work great. Um, but if you, if you just need a starting point, the 416 is a great sounding Foley mic. I, you know, broadly, I think the point I made before was that you tend to not want to mic your footsteps super close. You don't want to mic them super tight because uh, you, your ears are not used to hearing, you know, feet from that perspective. So, you know, typically you want to be yeah, a couple, a couple, three feet away, um, you know, a meter or so back so that you can get enough air between the performance and the microphone to where it feels like it's going to be doing the right thing. Um, in the context of a mix, also, you don't want super peaky or any kind of proximity effect recordings on your Foley stuff. Your Foley stuff has to feel nice and natural and, it, and you don't want you don't want your mic so tight that you're hearing proximity effect and you don't want it so tight that it's catching certain details a lot louder than other details. You want them to kind of blend together in space so that when your mixer pulls the Foley up, they're not having to do a bunch of dynamics work to it to make it feel correct. Um, you know, a lot of that is just, you know, place that mic as far back as, as you can stand it. And sometimes a little farther back than, than you think is, is, um, what's right. A lot of people, when they're not used to Foley, really stress out about signal to noise ratio on Foley. Um, but I find if you have a quiet enough room, you don't have to have super, super quiet, but you know, Foley doesn't usually get placed front and center in the mix. Obviously you want to cut Foley in such a way that it can be if the uh, situation warrants that, but in a broad sense, your Foley is going to sit and play with a lot of other elements. And so you, you have some latitude there with regards to signal to noise ratio and with regards to mic distance to really help tell the story of what it is you're trying to perform. Yeah, if you go back to Tone Bender's episode 23, we did a tour of Footstep Studios with Andy Malcolm, who's kind of a uh, god amongst Foley people. And there, there's a section in there that talks about how they mic with one mic, as you say, Renee, like a meter away, and then another mic like 20 meters away. And yeah. the Foley mixer is uh, putting a little bit of that second distant mic in to give that extra space. Uh, so yeah, go back to episode 23 and uh, you can hear them talk about that. And we also have a Foley episode coming up real soon on Foley 1. So Teresa, as a mixer, like, what do you what do you like to see in your Foley? What makes you happy when you pull a Foley track up? Oh, when I don't have to do anything. When it just sounds right. 
yeah. I find, I don't know. Like I wonder if that idea about um, signal to noise is like um, is like a leftover idea from years gone by when uh, we couldn't get quiet enough. Basically, yeah. You know, maybe they were miking Foley real tight because that's the way you could get clear sounds without a lot of noise. I don't know. Man, I don't um, think they were. I think if even if you look back at like old fifties like you know TV shows where they had the you know the the crew on stage singing the the musicals and stuff they had one mic and it was it was twenty feet away they were not afraid to play with the with the sound of the room and and Tim you probably recognize that as yeah. you walk into all the various Foley stages how they have rooms that sound like like what they need to sound like to cut Foley from a distance for sure. As you walk into those spaces, like what with your naked ears, what do they sound like when you're when you're in a when you're in a fully cutting space? They're quiet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm talking in terms of like reflections. Yeah, no, and, and other the, things the, like that. The ones at Footstep Studios, they they were pretty reflective actually. They, they were yeah. big rooms without a ton of treatment. They had curtains, so they could pull the curtains across when they needed it to be more dead. But the shows that they were working on when we were there, the curtains were fairly open. And then uh, Foley One was a more dead room, I believe. They had lots of soundproofing around the walls. Something I've noticed, I guess, so I just came back from vacation. So, the, you know, the last, you know, 20 years of my life, I've lived in uptown in Dallas. So dense, urban, you know, kind of metro area. And in a lot of cases, it, as I'm kind of actively listening to the world around me, I'll notice that I don't really perceive a lot of footsteps. And I think to some degree in the city, that's because of how loud the traffic wash and everything else is. Mm -hmm. um, footsteps in dense urban environments just don't carry very far. But man, I just came back from the Ozarks where there's you know a lake and a forest. And I was shocked at how far everything carries. Um, I mean, I was hearing intimate conversations that people were having just hundreds and hundreds of yards away because there was no ex there was no other overriding noise, and there was there was no physical obstruction in my path. And um, when the world opens up, it's amazing how far things carry. And when we're talking about you know the technical aspect of recording footsteps, I think that's another reason why. A certain amount of distance really, really does work in the context of a mix is because when you're in environments where sound does carry, you're used to hearing it that way. I mean, and even in the in the context of a shot, you know, a typical, you know, two shot or you get a shot of somebody walking, those people, you know, visually look like they're, you know, a couple meters away from you. And so you, it would be weird to hear the footsteps recorded too closely in mm -hmm. that setup. That was a long way for me to get to that point, but it was, <laughs> I was just, I was shocked at how far sound really does carry because I, I, I've spent too much time in too noisy of an environment, I guess. And I was, I was really blown away by how far it all goes. You got to wait till you add snow to the equation, Renee. I know you guys up there in Canada. Sound travels like crazy when there's a blanket of snow everywhere. Um, okay. Well, let's wrap her up then. Cool. Awesome. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to everyone who sent us in questions. It's always fun to answer questions on the show. I, I really love that. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders. You can go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. And you can support the podcast by shopping at ToneBendersPodcast.com slash Amazon or ToneBendersPodcast.com slash BH. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>